In this episode, I am going to visit a museum that highlights one of the greatest engineers of all time, and I'm going to find out what made him so great and then distill it for you so that you can use the same strategies in your engineering career. Let's do it. Welcome to the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, where it's all about helping real engineers to overcome real challenges and get real results. And now for your host, who is on a mission to inspire as many engineers as possible, professional engineer and certified career coach, Anthony Fasano. I welcome you to another episode of the podcast. This is a special episode because it's the first episode that I'm actually getting out of the office and going on site somewhere to record the show. I'm really, really, really excited about this. I went to the Roebling Museum down in Roebling, New Jersey, and I interviewed a historian who wrote a book about John Roebling, who in my opinion is one of the greatest engineers of all time. And it was a two-hour interview, so this is actually going to be broken up into a two-part podcast. But I took away a series of points that really blew me away about what made John Roebling such a great engineer. So I'm going to dive into them here, and we're going to go through it, and hopefully it's something that you can take as a blueprint for you moving forward. Before I do that, though, I want to mention just a few quick things. First of all, I want to mention our sponsor for today, which is Purdue University's Master's of Engineering Management Program. And this is something that is a big deal for me, and I say that because everybody that I talk to when I go to conferences, when I get contacted through LinkedIn, through the podcast... The question is always, should I get an MBA or should I get a master's in engineering? It's a great question. And it's probably a different answer for every single person. But Purdue University's MEM program is something that you should definitely consider if you're kind of a motivated engineer looking to get into the management side in the engineering industry. Their master's degree is specifically designed to advance your career in industry. And they have both on-campus and online study options available. So please check it out. It's a top-notch program, one of the top-ranked programs of its kind in the United States. And I've met with Melanie Schramm from the MEM program there several times. She came to our meetup down in Austin, Texas, talked to her about the program. I really like what they're doing. We have a couple of their students that are IECD members, and I'm actually going to try to get them on the show as well to talk to you about the educational side of the MEM so you can understand what it's like as a student. So if you're interested in the Purdue Masters of Engineering Management program, you can call 1-877-598-4233. Again, that's 877-598-4233, or just send an email to pro, P-R-O, masters at purdue.edu. And then one other announcement, the Kickstarter page for the event. I'm trying to create this event for engineers that will be extremely helpful going forward It's going to focus a lot around productivity, around work-life balance, around goal setting, around networking, all these skills that I talk about all the time. It's going to be all there for you in one weekend down in Washington, D.C. And I understand that those of you can't make it because you have to travel and there's expenses. So what I've done is I've added another reward to the Kickstarter page. It's a $10 reward. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the information from all those 15 or 16 sessions and I'm going to write a summary of each one and put it into an ebook or some kind of a format where you can have it and you can take that information and use it. And again, a lot of it's going to be work-life balance and productivity related, which I know is a huge challenge for engineers right now. So just for $10, you can get that information. So I really ask you to please 
go to engineeringevent.com. And if you could afford to put the $10 in, I promise you that the information you're going to get is going to be a huge return. And if you can come live and attend the event, please trust me to be career changing and life changing. But I understand if you can, maybe if you could donate in some way, shape or form, that would be great. And again, that's engineeringevent.com. All right, let's jump into the show here and let me explain to you how this is going to work. So I interviewed Clifford Zink, who wrote The Roebling Legacy. He knows everything there is to know about John Roebling and his family. Because it was so long, I'm breaking it up into two parts. So today, you're going to hear the first half of the interview for the next half hour or so. Then after that, at the end segment of the show today, I'm going to distill that part of the interview. Basically, there's 18 points that I took out of this whole interview that I believe made him a great, superb, excellent engineer. And if you apply even some of these, you can do the same. So after the interview gets played, I'll come back on for the end segment and I'll distill the first eight points of the 18. And then the part two, which will be out next week, I'll go through the other 10 points at the end of that show. So with that, let's just get going. I'll give you a quote from the author of the book that I'm going to be interviewing, and then we'll jump right in. It's a utilitarian structure but he made it a work of art. And that's from Clifford Zink. And again, this is a quote about John Roebling because one of the things that he was brilliant with is taking engineering and make it beautiful. So the quote is, it's a utilitarian structure, meaning that it's useful, but he made it a work of art. Let's get into the interview. So now it's time for the main segment of today's show, and I'm excited to be here at the Roebling Museum down in the Trenton, New Jersey area. It's the first time I'm actually doing a show outside of the studio, outside of the office, and as a civil engineer, it's exciting to be here looking around at some of the pictures of the different bridges that John Roebling worked on, who in my opinion is one of the greatest engineers of all time. And I'm going to be speaking with Clifford Zink today, who is the author of the book, The Roebling Legacy. He's a, a Roebling historian, and I'm excited to dig into John Roebling and his background here with Clifford. In my opinion, like I said, since John Roebling is one of the greatest engineers of all time, I want to understand a little bit of his background, a little bit of his approach, his mental approach, some of his tendencies, so that maybe by listening to the show, you can kind of feed off of some of that and implement that in any way you can into your engineering career. So Clifford, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here and great to be in this museum. And for those of you that are not familiar with John Roebling, he's most well known for his design work on the Brooklyn Bridge in the engineering realms, but he's a very interesting individual. I've read many articles about him, books that have referenced him. And I guess the best way to start is, Clifford, maybe you can just give us kind of a background of uh, yourself first before we get into John Roebling and you know, how you got into being so interested in him. Well, I'm uh, an historian, and um, I focus on architectural and industrial history, mostly of this uh, region where we are. And I was born in New York City and growing up around New York. The Brooklyn Bridge is the icon of New York City, Mm -hmm. and so I was always aware of it. And in 1983, the city had a big celebration for the 100th anniversary of the bridge. And um, there was David McCullough's book was published, and Ken Burns did a film, and there was a great interest about it. And I was living in Princeton at the time, and 
I knew that there was a big Roebling factory in Trenton, but there wasn't really much information available on it. And so I got interested in the topic and started doing research and uh, eventually discovered so much information that it became obvious that I could uh, write a book about it. And so I um, actually wrote a previous book to this one, and this is a follow-up book. Wow. So again, the name of the book is The Roebling Legacy, which we're going to dig into. And all of the information that we talk about in this show is going to be located on our website at engineeringcareercoach.com forward slash Roebling. That's R-O-E-B-L-I-N-G. And we'll link to Clifford's books and some of the other information that we can get to you on this so that basically you can take advantage of it and use it. So Clifford, let's get into John Roebling himself, and there's certainly some listeners that probably don't know much about him at all, so why don't you give us a little bit of a background on John Roebling, kind of as he grew up and got into engineering. So John Roebling uh, was born in Mühlhausen in Prussia. This was before Germany was united. Uh, It was in 1806, and Mühlhausen is a small town about 200 miles southwest of Berlin. Mühlhausen had about 10,000 residents. It was an old medieval town with Gothic churches and with a wall around it. And his family was middle class. They were tobacco merchants. He was the third of three sons and also had a younger sister. And when he was born in 1806, in June, about four months later, Napoleon marched into Prussia and defeated the, the Royal Prussian Army in a big battle at a town called Jena, which is only about uh, 30 or so miles uh, east of Mühlhausen. Hmm. So young John Roebling grew up in uh, French-occupied Prussia for the first six years of his life before the Prussians expelled the French. And that turned out to be a very auspicious time to grow up. Roebling benefited from a really excellent education. Probably it was among the best educations available in the whole world at that time for engineers. And the Prussians realized when Napoleon conquered them that they were behind the French in terms of their organization and even in terms of their technology. Napoleon's army was better organized and better able to travel quickly than the Prussians could, and uh, their engineers could build temporary bridges for going across streams very quickly. Hmm. And so the Prussians realized that they had to catch up to the French, and so they instituted educational reforms. And so by the time Roebling got to school, he benefited from this new curriculum that the Prussians developed Mm -hmm. to catch up with the French. And the old curriculum was reading, writing, and arithmetic, and some German history and Latin. And the new curriculum had more intense mathematics, it had some physics, and it had uh, drawing, fairly extensive uh, drawing. Hmm. And so as a very young man, he was uh, exposed to these things that would not have come as early as they did if it wasn't for Napoleon. Hmm. That's interesting. So the invasion caused them to you know, have to improve, to keep up, and 
because of that rolling benefit, which is amazing. And I've read about his education. It does sound like he had a brilliant education with brilliant educators from some of his, his professors and teachers that I've read about, which is wonderful. Tell us about his family a little bit growing up, his family life. So the parents owned a house in on a urban street okay. in, uh, in Mühlhausen. And the tobacco shop was on the first floor, and the family lived on the floor above. So in those days, the tradition of parents, particularly fathers, passing on their businesses to their crafts or professions to their children was even more prominent than it is today. So the problem for John Roebling, being the third son, was that the business wasn't big enough to support three families in the future. Okay. So his two older brothers were pretty obviously going to take over their father's uh, business. But that meant that John Roebling had to find a different profession. Hmm. So it turns out that he was extremely gifted in mathematics. And the schooling that he had really uh, enabled him to take great advantage of that, where if he hadn't had that schooling, that gift may not have really developed to its full extent. So Prussia was very interesting in the early 19th century because Prussia had free public education, which dated back to 1762. We didn't get free public education in this country until the 1850s. I think Massachusetts was the first state. I don't think it came to New Jersey until 1860s. Wow, that's 100 years before here. So the Prussian education involved going to something called a gymnasium or gymnasium, which was a school that went through uh, elementary, middle, and upper school levels all in one school. Hmm. And the school that John Roebling went to is actually still there. The building is still in existence. Wow. And there's really no evidence of how he got so interested in mathematics other than he just had this really great innate ability. His father was not an engineer. There's no other mm, that's family background that would be an automatic or obvious reason for him to have an early exposure to mathematics. But thanks to the reform education he had at the gymnasium, he actually left that at the age of 15, and he went to a town called Erfurt, which is about 40 kilometers away from Mühlhausen. Okay. And he went there to a boarding school. The boarding school was run by a man named Solomon Unger, and Unger was the foremost mathematician of Thuringia. The, Prussian state that Mühlhausen is located in is called Thuringia. Hmm. Unger taught uh, at the University of Erfurt for a while, but then for some reason the, the University of Erfurt was dissolved, and then he started this mathematics institute, and he ran it in his own house. And so John Roebling went to board with him in the Unger Institute, and while he was there, he studied um, advanced mathematics during the day, and also uh, he studied surveying, which was a practical application sure. of mathematics. And then he studied quite a bit of drawing, including mechanical drawing. 
So at the age of 15 and 16, he had the great benefit to study under the foremost mathematician in his region. And in those days, way before all the media that we have available to us now, Mm -hmm. movies, radio, television, cell phones, in those days, the way people socialized and interacted with each other had a lot to do with music. So many people learned to play instruments. It was very fairly common in those days. And uh, Dr. Unger was a musician himself, and so young John Roebling learned to play the piano and the violin. And I think fairly decently, his son Washington said he was quite good at both of them. Hmm. And so he picked that up in the Unger household and possibly even in the Roebling family household before that. Unger was also very interested in philosophy. Right. You know, one can imagine 15, 16-year-old John Roebling. During the day, he's studying mathematics with the foremost mathematician in his region. At night, the family, uh, you know, around the table, they're discussing philosophy and the current events of the day. And then after supper, they're, you know, playing music and violins. You know, a pretty good education for a teenager. No, absolutely. Back in those days. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to come here and talk to you about this. As a listener of this show, you know that we're trying to help you in your engineering career. And this is why we're kind of laying out John Roebling's life here and as he grew up, because it all contributes to the outstanding engineer that he was. And it's obvious now from what Clifford's told us that his education was phenomenal. I mean, the, the math and the drawing and all that stuff is kind of a, would make it obvious that that would help him in his engineering career. But it's the other aspects of it that I've read about, which is his interest in philosophy and his ability to play musical instruments, which you, you would consider more of a right brain, you know, more creative style than a lot of engineers, which is left brain, very technical, very black and white, which I'm sure that because he had this more whole-brained education, it definitely contributed to his success as an engineer. But this is an important, all these things that we're talking about are important, you know, leading up to his career. So Clifford, let's fast forward a bit. And how does John Roebling get to the United States? Tell us that story. Well, just before we go we talk about how he gets to the United States, it would be interesting to talk about the Royal Building Academy. Okay. So when he was uh, 18, Mm -hmm. after finishing up at the Unger Institute, he won a seat at the Royal Building Academy in Berlin. So by this time, the Royal Building Academy was one of the best polytechnic schools in the world. The best was most likely the French School of Roads and Bridges. So in those days, engineering meant pretty much building roads and bridges because those were the main problems of the day, how to expand transportation. So the Prussian government created the Royal Building Academy for engineers to learn how to mostly do roads and bridges. This is um, college level, Clifford, or high yes, school? Yes, college, okay. college level. Okay. In 1799, they created the Royal Building Academy. Okay. And we talked a little earlier about the educational reforms that the Prussians instituted after Napoleon. By the time John Roebling, at the age of 18, got to the Royal Building Academy, 
they had the best architects and the best engineers in Germany teaching there. And in those days, there wasn't really a distinction between architects and engineers. The degree, the certification that one got after finishing at the Royal Building Academy was called a Baumeister, okay. which means a master builder. Hmm. And so Roebling studied architecture and engineering. You know, today those two fields are divided. Yeah, distinctly. Architects, you know, study a minimal amount of engineering just to get some basic concepts. Engineers study a little bit about architecture to understand some architectural principles. But in those days, you really studied both. And there are two aspects to John Roebling's success that could be, you know, significantly compelling for your listeners. Sure. One is that he had this exposure to a world-class education, one of the best in the world. And the second is he made the most of it. You know, you can expose somebody to really good education, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the person is going to really soak up that education and right. learn everything they possibly can. Gotcha. And he did. And while he was at the Royal Building Academy in Berlin, he kept these extensive notebooks okay. of his work. He studied architecture, he studied um, bridges, he studied uh, dikes, he studied dams, studied hydrology, hmm. and he completed at least five notebooks. And when you look at these notebooks, they are jammed full of, of information every single square inch on the page is filled with his notes and wow. little sketches that he took in class. That's interesting. So it's obvious that he was a very, very rigorous student. Mm. And he also took advantage of other opportunities that he found in Berlin at the time. This was 1824. How old and is he now? About He's 18. He's 18, okay. And so he was at the Royal Building Academy. There was also a Royal Academy of Art he went to the Royal Academy of Art and studied drawings. Wow. And so he really improved his ability to draw, not just by doing mechanical drawings, but actually by doing artistic drawings. Mm. And then another major opportunity he took advantage of in Berlin was at the University of Berlin, which was a third separate school, the philosopher Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel was hmm. teaching philosophy. And Hegel was philosophical rock star of his day. He was very, very prominent and a brilliant thinker. And Roebling went to Hegel's lectures, and that's documented because his note in his notebooks he recorded attending those lectures. Wow. And so he not only took advantage of the educational opportunities in his own particular field in, in engineering and in architecture, but he expanded his capacity, so to speak, his perspective by studying art and also by studying philosophy. Again, back to some of those, you know, right brain, not just an engineering drawing, but an artistic drawing, which I think is a pattern here that certainly would help you know, lead to his success, but also the fact that he's a rigorous learner. I mean, that's interesting, those notebooks. Uh, I mean, are these things that they have available somewhere, that they found them, that they have them? 
the notebooks are at Rutgers University. Okay. Um, and they're marvelous to look at. The, they have wonderful little sketches in the pages that he took. So these are notes that he took during class. Wow. Or perhaps reading. That's amazing. And um, the problem with them is that they're written in the old German Gothic script. And okay. they're very, very hard to read. So if, even if you have a working knowledge of modern German, they're almost impossible to read because they're in this uh, old Gothic script. Gotcha. So it's, it's hard to access all the information in them. Some of them have been partially translated, but they have not been completely translated. And isn't it true that he did quite a bit of philosophical writing himself? So we had two influences with him. One was uh, Dr. Unger, right. who, when Rowling was a teenager, was you know family discussions of, uh, of philosophy, but, and then the exposure to Hegel. And so that led later in his life to him really pursuing philosophy more. Okay. But when he was a young man, the evidence is that he more focused on his, uh, his engineering development. Got it. So I, w one thing that he also was exposed to, which was very fortuitous to him, was um, in many ways the coolest and, and newest type of bridge that was being built at that time was the suspension bridge because obviously there are a lot of very beautiful stone arch bridges in Europe and elsewhere. And some iron bridges were starting to be made as well. But the construction of bridges for the principles of suspension, now of course that's been around for thousands of years with people like in Peru, you know, building suspension bridges with hemp sure. ropes. Yep. But modern suspension bridges really started to develop in the early 19th century. An engineer named Navier in France published a book on the principles and theory of suspension bridges. And uh, Roebling's professor at the University of Berlin wrote a German translation of that book. Oh, wow. So, and Roebling got the copy of that German translation, and he also got the original French book, and he brought both of those to America with him. Hmm. So those are examples of opportunities that he was exposed to that he really grasped, and he made himself a, an expert by studying Navier's theory of suspension bridges. He made himself an expert in that new technology, and he got very excited about that. He thought that this would be a, a really interesting field to work in. Hmm. And after he finished his studies at the Royal Building Academy, in exchange for his education, he had to work for the uh, State Road Department for three years. And while he was there, he proposed building two small suspension bridges. And there actually are very crude, I wouldn't say crude, but very sort of draft level sketches of these. And his superiors praised him for his innovative thinking, but they turned down his proposals. And so the fact that he was turned down partly reflected that people were uncomfortable with this new technology of suspension bridges and they were afraid of it. And also partly it reflected the fact that they 
bureaucratic hierarchy in Prussia was such that no senior engineer was going to allow a young upstart engineer to show, to come along and propose something new. You had to put in your dues for decades before you got to a level of authority where you hmm. would be able to uh, introduce something new because the older engineers really didn't want to be upstaged sure, by sure. new ideas, new young engineers. It was very traditional sort of bureaucracy. Hmm. So Roebling was very frustrated by that. And that plus, I think he was influenced partly by Hegel because Hegel taught a great deal about freedom. And he actually said to his students that America is the land of desire. Those were the words he used. Hmm. Uh, land of desire for people, for young people who wanted to uh, work in an atmosphere of freedom where they could pursue their ideas. And so that must have been very appealing to young John Roebling, that you know America had these opportunities that he might not be able to find at home. And then uh, secondly, he might be able to pursue specifically his interest in suspension bridges, which was thwarted during his experience with the road department. Okay. So before we get into Roebling's life now here in the U.S., a couple things I think that we can take away from that. The early part of his life, we talked about the world-class education. We talked about he was a rigorous learner. Clifford highlighted his work at the state for the roads department, which I think is important because one of the things I've always been a proponent of for engineers is to get field experience in your career and also as early as possible because that's where you get to see things being built and that makes you just a better designer. When you know the way something is put together and then you go to lay it out for someone else, you're more practical. And so we know now, based on what Clifford told us, that Roebling had some field experience, very young, which I'm sure was important. We also know that he was very innovative. He had a lot of the interest in a lot of those right brain activities we talked about. And you can see that he learned about this new technology of suspension bridges and then immediately learned about it and tried to implement it and be innovative in his, I guess you can call it internship uh, with the roads that was denied. But nonetheless, he was definitely innovative. And then I guess one last component of this is that he identified something in engineering that he was excited about and he was pretty much ready to pursue it at whatever cost, leaving his home country, taking, I'm sure at that time, a trip to the U.S. Was a, was a big deal, a big trip. So that's another thing that I've seen a lot of successful engineers is that there's a lot of different engineering disciplines, but if you want to be super successful, you've got to go with the one that's interesting to you, that you're passionate about, and we know Roebling did that. So now he's headed to the U.S. Take us to so that So 1831, journey. at the age of 25, he left Germany with some other German settlers who also wanted to come to America. And uh, so he came to Philadelphia, and they were interested in establishing a, a German village. So they went out to western Pennsylvania, and uh, north of Pittsburgh, they bought uh, land and they built um, a German village. And the idea was they wanted it to be a a self-sufficient village where Germans would come there with a variety of skills. Not only would they be able to do some farming, but a blacksmith would come, a carpenter would come, 
and, and a barrel maker so that the, the, the village would have all these different skills and they could have kind of a, a German village there. Hmm. And then his idea was later on, they would look to try to build some uh, productive facilities like mills. So they wanted to be in, air, in an area where there was timber that you could set up a sawmill for. Hmm. And so he arrived in this country in 1831 at a very auspicious time because uh, America and the Industrial Revolution are starting to expand significantly. And here he shows up and he's got this superb technical education from Germany at a time when there are hardly any trained engineers or architects in America. Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, sure. where uh, John Roebling sent his son, Washington, uh, and his actually two sons went there. That just started in 1824. So there weren't very many graduates from there. I think West Point, the military academy, started a little earlier than that. But that would have been military studies in addition to some engineering studies. Mm -hmm. So Roebling arrives with this really first-class education. And after working and setting up this farming village where he designed and built the houses and he designed and built the church, which drew upon his architectural training that he had back in Germany, uh, he then took a job surveying for the uh, Pennsylvania Canal system. And there he was able to use some of his uh, experience uh, that he learned at the German Roads Department because they had some road building practices, particularly small culverts over small streams and things, that nobody was doing here. So he was really able to use, as you called it, his sort of internship experience sure. and apply it in a new situation. And then while he was working for the Pennsylvania Canal System, he observed these inclined planes that were used in the canal system to get canal boats over the Allegheny Mountains. So the boat would come on the Pennsylvania Canal up to the foot of the mountain, and then there was a little railroad car that would be submersed, and the boat would go on top of the car, and then the car would be hauled up the mountain and the boat would go on the car to the top of the mountain and then it would be let down the other side and then to another section of the canal and go to the next mountain. So this was a complicated mechanical setup to be able to haul these boats up to the top of the mountain. And the original equipment for that was included uh, hemp ropes Hemp, of course, is a natural vegetable fiber, and the hemp ropes were about three inches in diameter. Okay. And they were the biggest maintenance item on these on the Pennsylvania Canal system because being a vegetable material, the hemp rotted, and so it had to be replaced quite frequently, uh, every year or two. And they were very expensive to make and install these ropes. So Roebling observed this and realized that maybe it was possible to do something better. And so here's an example of his problem solving. Hmm. And like I said earlier, we really don't have evidence of how he got his keen interest in mathematics 
other than his own innate ability in math. And nor do we have evidence of how, as a child growing up, he may have become interested in problem solving. But he clearly was. When he saw something that he thought he could do something about, he was very, he wasn't afraid to jump in and, and take some risks and mm. try to do something that no one else had ever done before. And I think that's a characteristic, certainly, of innovative people in many different fields. Sure. In, in a, besides engineering, his ability to take risks. So a friend of his in Germany sent him an article that a German mining engineer had written about a wire rope that he had made for this mine that he was working on. And so this German engineer also was using hemp ropes to haul ore out of this mine in Germany. And hemp ropes were less than satisfactory. So he got some wires and he twisted these wires and made a rope out of them. And this is really the earliest evidence of somebody making a wire rope. This would be around 1835. 1837. And so Roebling read this and, you know, someone said recently that innovation is studying one situation really, really carefully so you fully understand it, and then studying the another situation really, really carefully uh, until you understand that one and then smashing those two ideas together <laughs> and trying to figure out what you come up with. So in this case, Roebling studied the canal uh, inclined planes very carefully and he saw how these hemp ropes worked and where the problems were. And then he studied this article on a wire rope, two independent ideas, and he took these two and he smashed them together yeah. and he thought, Amazing. I can do something to improve this situation. I can pr solve the problem of these hemp ropes being less than satisfactory on these inclined planes. So then the risk taking, so there's a great innovation on his part to be able to think of that, but then he had to take the risks. And the risks involved the fact that he had never seen a wire rope. So what he did was he went to Pittsburgh, which was 35 miles south of the village that they created, which is called Saxonburg, and he bought wire from a Pittsburgh wire drawer. And he took that wire back to his farm and he got a bunch of his German farmers together. And remember I said that some of these farmers were master craftsmen. Right. They knew iron, you know, blacksmithing, and they knew carpentry, so these were skilled, skilled men. And they stretched out these wires uh, and created a rope walk on the back of his farm, on his meadow. So ropes have been traditionally made for millennia by process of rope walks. So in, the, in terms of ropes made of hemp or other vegetable fibers, you stretch it out, you stretch the fibers out, on a long walk, it's called, and then you twist them together. So okay. Rowling, of course, had never done this, but nevertheless, he studied the process and he created a rope walk on his farm and he built this wire rope, never having seen one. Wow. So the first one he made, he installed on the 
as a temporary trial installation, and it failed because uh, he hadn't made it properly. On one of these rail carts, on one of these boat lifts? He, he did it on the inclined plane. Okay. And it started to come apart because he hadn't assembled it properly. So a lot of people, when they would reach that point, they would throw up their hands and maybe say that, you know, I failed, I can't do it. But he was persistent. Hmm. And he went back to the farm and he came up with an improved version, the second version of his wire rope. And he thought this one is going to work. So by now, the Pennsylvania Canal System, the officials are reluctant to test this new rope because nobody's had a wire rope before. Right. So what Roebling does is he takes another risk and he says to them, I will install this rope on one of these inclined planes at my own expense. And if it works after one year, you can pay me. And so they agreed to that and he installed it and it was, he, he had to make new machinery for it because the hemp rope machinery with the big wheels and the steam engine and everything. He had to adapt and change all that for this wire rope. Okay. Anyway, he installed it, the wire rope worked, and the Pennsylvania Canal System immediately started ordering more wire rope from him. The next step he did after this is also very instructive, I think, for some of your listeners, which is that he thought a fair amount about marketing. You know, whether you are a business and you have to um, market your product or market your services, or if you're just an individual sure. and you have to put yourself out there yeah. so people know who you are and what you do, you have to do it. You can't sit around and wait for people to knock on your door. And Roebling understood this. So after his rope was successful, he wrote an article for the American Railroad Journal, which was the wired magazine of its day, mm -hmm. because the, most of the technological improvements at that time were taking place in railroads. And the American Railroad Journal is where these kind of improvements were written up. And so Rowling wrote an article about this new wire rope that he developed for these inclined planes and got it published in the American Railroad Journal. Well, of course, now he started getting a lot more orders for his wire rope. Wow. So he started building this wire rope business and not just waiting for the customers to come along, but actually to go out there and say, here's a, a new product I have and, uh, and here's how well it worked on the Pennsylvania Canal System. And then he started getting orders from other canal systems. Wow, so he's a real entrepreneur as well. He was an excellent entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's interesting. That is something that I do talk to engineers a lot about is that you have to market yourself. You're not just going to go through your engineering career hoping that you're going to get the next promotion or the next big project. You've got to work. You've got to show your craft to people, what you're capable of, and take some risks and go look for opportunities. Otherwise, if you get stuck in your same cubicle or the same desk or the same office or the same project, it's not a waiting game. So it's obvious that John Roebling, as soon as he saw an opportunity, he tried to capitalize. I mean, that's brilliant writing an article in that journal. I mean, to think about the marketing. I mean, obviously today there's a lot more avenues to do something like that. But even back then, that, that's, that's amazing.
All right, so I hope you enjoyed that first half of the interview with Clifford Zink. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to distill it a little bit here for you. And I'm going to go through eight points that we can pull out of that portion of the interview that will be very helpful for you in your engineering career if you think about them, if you apply them. And the first one is that his world-class education, which Clifford talked about. John Roebling had a world-class education, which is huge and very important. And the second point is he made the most of it. And that's something that I want all of you to think about. I'm sure most of you on this show either have an engineering degree from a good school or in the process of getting one. The question is, how are you going to make the most of it? How are you going to use that education? How are you going to lean on everything that goes along with that education, like the professors? Are you going to stay in contact with them? You have to think about when you have an opportunity to education, how are you going to utilize that? So be mindful of that. The third point was field experience. Roebling was able to get that internship. He was able to work on a couple suspension bridges. You need to get field experience. I don't care how old you are. I don't care what field you're in. Get on the shop floor. Get on a construction site. If you think you're too old or you've missed that shot, interview people that have, watch videos, read things. You need to have field experience because you won't understand everything that goes into a project if you do not. Fourth point, be innovative. Try different things. John Roebling was innovative. He heard about the new technology around suspension bridges and immediately tried to implement it. He just went right after it. Try different things in your career. Tip number five or point number five, follow your passion. John Roebling had a passion for suspension bridges, so he went to the U.S. to find them. And I give you an example. I have a member of the Institute, Ilias. I know he's a big listener. He might be listening right now. His passion was to be a structural engineer, and he followed it at all costs. He's given up a professional soccer career on teams like a Real Madrid type of career to become a structural engineer. He left a small country in Africa and came to the US to chase his dream, but then he was kind of stuck in the environmental field and he kept telling me, Anthony, I want to get into structural, I want to get into structural. So I helped him the best I could. Now he's got a great job as a structural engineer and he's really becoming a world-class structural engineer. So follow your passion. Be a problem solver. And that's kind of obvious, right? As an engineer, we need to solve problems, but identify problems and solve them. And remember, you have to look at a problem and not just see the bad in it, but understand where there's opportunities and how you could take that problem, turn it into an opportunity and solve it. The seventh point was take risks. John Roebling took risks. When he developed the wire rope and it didn't work, and then he took, brought out the second version of it, he took a risk of installing this stuff on bridges and saying, Listen, just pay me in a year if it works. That's a risk. So you can take a risk in your career. You can go into your boss's office and say, this job's not challenging enough. Or I want to start a new department. Or I want to take a job that's international and outside of my country and my comfort zone. Take a risk in your career. That's what makes you great. That's what made John Roebling great. And the last point for this segment is persistence. John Roebling's wire rope failed. Failed miserably. And he came back and he did it again. He could have gave up, but then the John Roebling company and all of his legacy with the wire ropes never would have happened. So you're going to fail in your career, or at least it's going to appear that you failed, whether you didn't get a job you wanted, you didn't get the raise you wanted, whatever the case may be, be persistent. If you have clear goals and a passion, follow it at all costs and be persistent. So with that, I hope you enjoyed this first segment. I'd love to get feedback. You can email me at afasano at engineeringcareercoach.com or you could visit the show notes for this show, which will be at engineeringcareercoach.com forward slash 
Roebling, R-O-E-B-L-I-N-G, the number one, Roebling one. And you can leave some comments there. I want to hear how this format of the show worked for you. If you liked it, And if these points are helpful, certainly let me know. And I'll be back next week with the second half of the interview and another 10 points that you can take and implement into your career. With that, I hope that you continue to engineer your own success. If you want to hear more episodes of the Engineering Career Coach podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes or go to engineeringcareercoach.com where you will find tons of free engineering career resources. Just click the Start Here button on the site for an easy-to-navigate index of all the resources available. You can also follow Anthony Fasano on Twitter at Anthony J. Fasano or Facebook at facebook.com forward slash engineer your own success. Until the next time, thanks for listening.